Welcome to the A-Game Podcast with Nick LaMagna, digging into the minds and experiences of some of today's brightest entrepreneurs in real estate and business, along with Hollywood stars, UFC fighters, and your favorite rock bands. People that have figured out how to overcome obstacles, take chances, live boldly, and no matter what they do, they always bring their A-Game. Thank you for checking out the A-Game Podcast again on this Thursday episode. It is a solo episode. I recorded a few great episodes with some incredible guests over the last week or two that are going to be coming out over the next, uh, I'd say, two to two to six weeks, and uh, it's been really great. But I really want to make sure as I'm healing up from the side of surgery still a little bit, I am staying consistent with getting out these Thursday episodes as well. Uh, so I'm trying to get some topics to specifically go over before we do that, once again, just a quick plug. Please make sure you're checking out on the affiliate links, nicknick.com slash links, Naked Warrior Recovery for CBD by William Braddon, who is a Navy SEAL, great guy. Follow him on social media as well on Naked Warrior Recovery. But some of the most uh, pure CBD you can get, they have all kinds of stuff. If you go on nicknick.com slash links and you look at the affiliates tab, you will see a way to get a discount using promo code AGAME on that. Also, more importantly, let's get talking about real estate. If you're interested in buying properties from me, selling properties to me, partnering up on some deals, or just figuring out a way to start to get in, you don't even really know where to start, whether you're bigger, <laughs> whether you're beginner, intermediate, or advanced, residential, commercial, land, rentals, whatever you want, let's just start that conversation. Let's get something moving. Go on nicknick.com slash links, find all the ways to subscribe to this podcast and to contact me via email or social media. And we will have that conversation and figure out where you can fit in, how we can work together, how to start making you money. But it is super important just to start getting that going, whether it's your first property or your hundredth property, or you're scaling up from residential to multifamily. Let's find a way to make it happen. I'm coming across deals every single day now. Uh, you know, we're, we're making it work. We have people that are that are bringing us different things, and they all fit different people, different situations, different price points. So let's just have a conversation to get that going. And also, if you go on nicknicknick.com slash biggerpockets or nicknicknick.com slash links, you can find our free calculator and our free ebook on how to bring more values to your buyers. Check that out while we still have it available. And thank you very much for all the support. If you're interested in having me as a guest in your podcast, or you have some topics you would like me to discuss or would potentially like to be a guest on this podcast, please email podcast at nicknicknick.com. That is it for my plugs. So I'm going to use this episode to recap when I was on the Bigger Pockets podcast, because if you have not listened to it, it is the biggest real estate podcast in the world. And it was an honor to be on there and very unexpected. I did not expect at all to be asked to be on that podcast. And I was very nervous and all of me actually wanted to say no, but I, you know, you don't pass up those opportunities. So those guys are real cool. Both of them, you know, David coming on my podcast, Bradley coming on my podcast. If you guys have not listened to those episodes, you absolutely should. And definitely please check out my episode and their podcast because it is outstanding. But, you know, I hadn't talked about a lot of those things for a while. And it was weird being a guest on a podcast because they asked questions of just things that I, I didn't remember some of the details of, or you're trying to piece them together a little bit on the fly and it's been a long time or, or some of the, some of the deals or some of the different things flow and mesh together and you're a little nervous. 
and I noticed I was talking very fast when it first started. So I thought it would be good just to take some of those key points. And as I did that, I started making notes here and I actually realized that there's a lot of really good subtopics in here that I'm going to pull out over the course of the next month or two and do some other individual solo episodes just on those. But there was a few things that I thought for the average person that's listening to this, they might not have known what some of those terms were or some of the things that I glossed over that I wanted to go a little bit deeper into. So this is basically like an overview of that episode. So one of the things I asked was about how do I get in, how I got into real estate. And I haven't really told that story on this podcast. I told it on a couple of others, but I'm not really going to go into that right now. I will eventually probably do a little bit more of that. But what I thought was interesting is no matter what people are doing, whether they have a cushy job or they're struggling or hate their current situation, they always want more out of life. And it seems like real estate is always the thing that they want to turn to. Even when I was in construction, I remember we would be doing picket lines or be on jobs. And I would hear guys always saying like, man, if I go back and I could do it over, I'd take some money, I'd stash it away. I'd invest in a couple of real estate properties, maybe buy something to fix up, keep it as a rental, put it in long-term, get some cash flow. Like that's what I've always heard be more of the American dream than anything else. Is anybody that had like the quote unquote American dream with just the cushy job with the retirement, they always wish they just did a little bit more and it always resulted in, in real estate. So I was forced to do something because I had to make a change in my life because of my accident, because of the things that happened. But one of the things I always want to, want to touch on is don't wait until your back is up against the wall and you have some sort of like medical bills you can't pay or six months to live or you lost everything in a divorce or you know COVID came and wiped out your job to start doing something. Being in that comfort zone is the absolute worst place you could possibly be. And I've talked about it before, but the emergency room is always the busiest place in every hospital in every city every day full of people standing room only that never thought that whatever happened to them that day they got them there was ever going to happen to them. So people tend to be in this denial. It's weird because there's things that you'll see other people get and do, and you just don't believe it'll ever happen to you. And it works for bad things and good things. I know so many people that worry about what if I get sick? What if I get cancer? What if I get hit by a car? What if I get into a plane crash? They believe that that could happen to them, even though there's a chance of like, whatever, 0.00001%, getting struck by lightning, like these things, oh, I'm going to get eaten by a shark versus like what I'm going to make money. I'm going to get rich. I'm going to become a millionaire. I'm going to be successfully flipping houses. I'm going to buy some good stocks. And like a lot of the good things that there's tried, proven, tested testimonials and, and information all over the place and a very strong likelihood that if you do these things, you will be successful if you stick with it and follow the recipe. But they don't believe that, but they do spend their entire life worrying about the thing that'll probably never happen. And because of that, that that weird fear of the unknown and unrealistic fears, I think, keep people from taking chances. And I see more and more people do it when their back is against the wall. And that's why I think you hear a lot of these hero stories of people that are down in the dumps or their life is turned upside down and they find a reason. It's like all those like old Arnold Schwarzenegger movies when, or uh, Sylvester Stallone or whatever, you know, the alcoholic drug addict cop who's like, you know, a, an absent father and like was a bad husband. And then, you know, the, the kid gets kidnapped. You, you know where I'm going with this, but they find a reason or a why. And it's so cliche and it sounds so ridiculous, but it really is one of the biggest things. So if I could push anything from that, it would be that, uh, you know, something is going to happen in your life at some point, but there's never, it's never going to feel like the perfect time. It's never going to feel like the right time. But David made a, 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 
a comment. He said, never leave your life up to chance. So the injury was something that did it for me, but that has to be a choice. You know, you don't want to sit there every day waiting for something to happen. You know, I've heard the term waiting for Superman, but I feel like too many people every day are thinking, I'm going to start tomorrow. I'm going to start next week. Something's going to change, but they don't do anything. They want Superman to fly in and make something happen for them or something to magically change. And that's not how things work. You have to make stuff happen. And it comes from making tough decisions and changing the recipe and changing what you do every day. It doesn't have to be everything all day, but it's got to it's got to start with you. You have to start doing something. You have to pick up the phone. You have to make a, uh, a choice to call a realtor. You have to reach out to me and ask how you can start getting into real estate. Like those things have to start to happen. You have to follow up. You know, I get busy. I forget things. There's still people I haven't gotten back to since the Bigger Pockets podcast. I had surgery. I had things come up. doesn't matter. I'm going to do it. But there's people that have reached back out to me. Hey, I haven't heard from you. We started connecting again. We jumped on a phone call. So it comes from a little bit. You can't just say, ah, oh, you know what? I reached out. I didn't hear anything. It wasn't meant to be. That's not how things go. You have to stick with things. You have to be persistent, especially if you want them. So first takeaway here is do not leave your life up to chance. Thank you, David Green, for passing that on. Now, comfort zone, as far as what you want to get into, you know, there's people that want to swing big. They want to buy a million dollar property. They want to buy a house in Maui. They want to buy all kinds of different things. I talk about on that show how I started in lower price points because that was what was comfortable for me. I didn't have any money. I didn't have any credit. I didn't have any experience. I was terrified trying to buy properties that were four, five, six, seven hundred thousand dollars because for me, I felt like the mistakes on that price point could be bigger. And I felt like it was going to be uncomfortable for me or for somebody to lend money on a deal that was that size. Now I realize that if it's a deal and there's a return and the boxes are checked, somebody's going to lend money on it. But that doesn't necessarily mean that what I did was wrong or I would do it different because dipping my toe in that size deal, those properties that you know, you're buying for 50, you put 30 in and they're worth 150 and you burn them or you rehab them and you rent them out or you just turn around and you sell them or you do a turnkey or whatever it is. Those small deals got me the confidence to start. So that was the most important thing out of everything was really just doing that and getting that going. Because at the end of the day, I looked at other properties that were bigger and I didn't pull the trigger on them because whatever psyche I had or insecurities I had or fears I had about any of those things really kept me from moving forward. So it's always going to be uncomfortable. It's always going to feel scary, but try and figure out like, where is it that it's still scary, but not so scary that I'm not going to do it. Is it a single family home? Is it a rental? Is it a rental around the block from your house? Is it a house hack? Is it a four unit? Is it a multifamily, but it's a, a six unit multifamily. That's a $300,000 thing. Is it a million dollar property? Is it, you don't care. You have, you know, money you inherited. Is it, you know, a, a $20,000 house in Detroit. I don't know what it is, but figure out like at what point did you start to go, this is still scary. This is still uncomfortable because it's always going to feel like that. But where can I start? What does that look like? And maybe that starts with something as basic like when most people first call me, if there's something that they want to buy that they want to hold or fix up, we first have to figure out, well, what, what are you even capable of buying? Let's figure out financially, like what are you going to get approved for so we can figure out how big a property to go after? And that doesn't mean that we spend all of the money you have on that. That means like, okay, you have X, what are you comfortable using? Let's figure that out. Okay, what type of return will that get you? 
okay, let's, where can we get those types of returns? How can we get those types of returns? What does that look like? Do we need to do evaluate? Can we buy something stabilized? Can we buy something turnkey? If not, how much comfort do you have with getting into something that needs a lot of work? Maybe that makes you uncomfortable. You're scared of dirty houses. You're scared of contractors. You're scared of permits. So you want something that doesn't need a lot of work. You want something that's already been fixed up or, you know, whatever it may be, but it's a, it's, it's literally risk analysis. It's what is your risk tolerance for getting into that first deal, but there's always going to be risk because it's real estate. You're going to have to get comfortable with mitigating that risk. And that's the next thing I want to talk about, you know, just making sure your comfort level um, works out and don't be afraid to start in a lower price point. Don't, you know, just because somebody else you see on Facebook is doing, you know, a 200 unit for their first deal doesn't mean that you have to, or you should, but it also doesn't mean that you shouldn't. It's a very personal choice. There's a lot of different things that go into that, but again, it's a conversation we can have. So another thing that, that they talked about was uh, I told a story about some of my friends that had sort of, I guess, big mouths and I bought them in on, on deals to co-sign or to partner. And I think that that's an important thing. And it doesn't have to be as brash as the way I made it sound or talk about it, but I always want to be listening and watching. That's something you should really start to do if you're thinking about getting into real estate, especially if it's somebody that I haven't personally met you or talked to you and you're listening to this podcast, it's probably because you made a conscious decision that it was something you were interested in wanting to learn about and started putting those on. Like when you go to buy a car, all right, I want a, you know, a Mustang convertible. You start seeing them everywhere. You're going to start to see people like me pop up on Instagram and on LinkedIn and look at podcasts and see posts and, and see things on bigger pockets that you're just going to start to be attracted and pay more attention to those things. So it's no different. Once you make that choice, start to think and listen to people's conversations when people are talking about having money to invest, having, you know, I don't know, an inheritance, maybe having an equity line of credit, being being busy, but having money, doctors, lawyers, people that work a lot of hours that might have some cash or people that are already investing in real estate that you might want to partner up with or invest in, or people that are talking about their credit repair companies or, or, people that they know that are connectors to money or to deals or to real estate or to whatever, but start to make mental notes of that, of like, okay, this is somebody I could approach. This person said, you know, they bought other properties, they own something here, or they just sold this or whatever, but just start to make those mental notes because it, there will be a time that you'll see this whole thing is a big puzzle. And at some point, everybody is a buyer and a seller and a lender and a borrower. It's just a matter of what are they today and how do they fit into your current situation and how do you fit into theirs? But there will be a time when you start to get those conversations and those pieces will fit, but have those kind of checked, not, not, not really, I guess penciled in is really the, the word, you know, have them kind of earmarked or bookmarked or thought out in place for this is somebody I would think about going to maybe put it on paper, maybe put it on an Excel sheet, but always be listening, always be watching, and always be thinking about ways that this can fit into your overall business plan. The other thing they talked about was liar loans. So for you guys that are not familiar with this, especially if you were not investing before the crash, the way that this started to happen was they would say, hey, look, if you don't have any money or you don't have any credit, it doesn't matter. What we're going to do is we're going to put you in what we call a liar's loan. And this is why you're starting to see like when people get nervous. One of the first signs that the real estate market's going to start to be affected by that is the lenders started to tighten up because they got hurt real bad when the market turned last time because of things like this. So they'd say, hey, you know what? Come in. And I literally, they, they, this is what they did. They would, they'd say, hey, come in here. Hey, look, this is a house you could buy right now. And I'd say, well, I don't have any money. 
I don't have a job. I don't have credit. I'm out on disability. They say, don't worry, man. We're going to do what's called the stated income loan. And they literally would say, in the industry, it's called a liar's loan. Everybody's okay with it. Everybody knows about it. And you don't know any different. You have a guy who's a mortgage broker or a banker and, or a real estate agent, and they're telling you, this is just how it is. This is just what they do. And you're going, okay, well, they're the professional. They probably know. And they go, so we're going to state that you make, you know, $10,000 a month. And you go, well, I don't. They go, oh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's fine because you're going to get the loan. And then what's going to happen is you'll get either money back at closing or you'll get cash flow. There's already a tenant in there. And the market is so hot that in 6, 12, 18 months, what we'll do is we're going to put you on an interest only loan with an adjustable rate mortgage. And by the time it adjusts, it'll have more equity and you can refinance out. And that's what people would do is you get it and you're not making a huge monthly payment initially. But then all of a sudden what happened was the market didn't get better. And now your equity's worse. And there was at that time, tons of overbuilding and speculative investing and developments that were like half finished. So there was so much inventory and now there was not enough buyers that were primary residents or homeowners. So now people are slashing prices on rentals, slashing prices on, on purchases. There's people squatting in there and you're just dropping the price, dropping the price. And now you're negative. And then you weren't supposed to be in that property anyway, because you didn't have any money. And the goal that they told you was that you were going to get in and get out in six months. Now you can't get out in six months. Now your rate adjusts. Now your payment is double. And they put you in five of those. I cannot tell you how many people that happened to that all of a sudden now, every time those rates adjust a little bit because these slimy brokers put you in a liar's loan that you had no business in. And now they're back to cutting hair or selling cars or doing whatever they did. They took their commission and you called them and you said, Hey, I, I just lost everything on this. You never should have put me in that loan. They go, oh, sorry, buyer beware. So there was a lot of predatory lending and a lot of shady stuff going on there. It worked for people for a long time until it didn't anymore. And that's why I'm always looking at what could go wrong and what could go right and weighing both of those things out. And some of those markets change a lot. So that's why just because you can buy something doesn't mean you should buy something. What happens? You know, be educated, ask other people. And there wasn't things like Facebook groups and all these things around them like there is now for things that you can go and, and ask other people and, and write on forums and write on groups and have people volunteer to call you and say, hey, I went through this, I did this, don't do this. Here's a calculator you can pull this into that'll say what your payments will jump to. And I own a property around there. Here's a There's so much more activity and things on social media that you can, if you take the time to research these things, find out what the pros and cons of them actually are, and then you can make your own decision. Another thing they talked about was Burr, which we have talked about on this, but that's a, a couple of these other topics I'm going to go into on a much deeper level, but buy, rehab, rent, refinance, which was basically a strategy where you would get into the, the loan with what we call a hard money lender. So HMO, we talked about hard money lenders during this Bigger Pockets podcast, and we talked about Burr. So basically, if you have a house that is distressed, so it needs kitchens, bathrooms, flooring, paint, electric, whatever it is, it's uninhabitable for you as the as the buyer. So if it's uninhabitable, that means that, or even if it's not, it might be livable, but it's not up to a condition that a bank's gonna give a loan on it. So think about from the bank's perspective, there's no collateral there. So they're not gonna say, hey, Nick, this house is a piece of crap. I'm gonna give you a loan on this piece of crap. And then if you don't pay me, we're gonna take the piece of crap back. No, the banks wanna give loans to houses that are meeting a certain criteria that's why they have to be fixed up to a certain standard. So what a hard money lender will do is they'll come in and they'll loan you money on a house that a bank normally won't, knowing that this is a property that needs some love, it needs some work, it needs some rehab. So in not all cases, but in some cases, in a lot of cases, 
They care a lot less about your credit, your finance, your experience. They're looking at the numbers of the property, especially if they're what's called an asset-based hard money lender. And again, this is a whole episode I can do specifically just on funding to talk about all these things, but it's an extremely common way for people to get into a real estate deal with not a lot of money or not a lot of credit because the hard money lender will give you, depending on whether you know, rule of thumb, 78, 80% overall, there's different ways that they do it depending on purchase price or rehab or ARV. But overall, you'll probably have to come in with maybe 20, 25%. But what happens is now you put that money in and then you'll have the after repair value. So what's cool is a bank's going to look at what it's worth now. A lot of our money lenders are going to lend on based on what it's going to be worth in the future, which is crazy. So if you're looking at this and saying, hey, this house is going to be $50,000 well, let's make it easy math, $30,000 to buy, $20,000 to fix up. So I'm all in for 50 and that house is worth a hundred after it's done. And the, you know, the hard money lender gives you X amount to fix it up, X amount to buy it. So maybe you put a little bit of money in and then you borrowed that from somebody else like I did. And now you got it fixed up. So now you're only to it for 50,000 and now you put a tenant in that's paying you, let's say 850 a month. So it's cash flowing after six months of seasoning, and there's ways around that too, but after, let, let's say six months, now that property appraises at $100,000. Now you go back to a conventional lender or a local bank or a broker, and you say, hey, I want to take out a refinance loan. So there's two ways to do that. You could do a, a rate and term refinance where you're just literally getting out of the hard money loan because you don't want to stay in it because it's usually high interest and short term. So they're not normally going to give you a long-term loan to hold that as a buy and hold. And if they could, generally the interest rate on it could potentially kill your cash flow. It tends to be a, much more expensive than a conventional loan where now you're seeing people get you know, two, three, four percent, you're rarely going to find a hard money lender that's going to do that. So you can do that. Or what most people were doing was the burn method, which is buy, rehab, rent, refinance, repeat. And on the refinance, they would do a cash out from anywhere from 60 to 80%. So let's say the bank says, you know what, this looks great. You seasoned it. You have a tenant in there. We're going to give you a loan on this property at 75% of the loan to value. So if it's worth a hundred, they're going to give you 75% of that. So they're going to give you 75,000 you are all into it for 50,000. So now you can pay back the hard money lender. There's gonna be points and fees and things like that in there. So the, the net will be a little bit less, yes, but overall for easy math, you pay them back their 50, you get 75 back from that bank. It's still cash flowing at 850 a month. Your loan on it's probably what, seven, seven fifty. And now you've gotten $25,000 back tax-free because it's rolled into the loan that you can now, literally you're into that property for no money out of your own pocket. You have another $25,000 tax-free to reinvest into another property. And you can repeat that process over and over again and really build up a portfolio like that. And that's a very similar thing you can do on a commercial property, but with way bigger numbers. So Ever wanted to play the drums? Or do you want to get your kids some drum lessons to burn some of that energy while they are all locked up? Take advantage of a free drum lesson with one of the tri-state area's most respected drummers, Dan LaMagna. Dan LaMagna has played in such bands as Crown of Thorns, Suicide City, Biohazard, The Real McKenzie's, Sworn Enemy, The Walls of Jericho. He has played all over the world and he is also endorsed by such companies as DW, Vader, and Sabian. Dan has taught Tons of people from all different age groups and all different music styles. He can teach adults, kids, advanced, beginner, any types of styles from metal, all different types of percussion, whatever style you want. Get a free drum lesson today from Dan. All you need to do is text the word drummer, D-R-U-M-M-E-R, to 
800-633-0585. Again, text the word DRUMMER, D-R-U-M-M-E-R, to the number 833-632-0585 for your free online drum lesson. Uh, another thing we talked about was wholesaling. So for people who don't know what wholesaling is, again, this is a whole other thing I could, I'm going to have a whole episode on, but basically it, it's buy at a discount. So if you think about what any stores do, you know, a Costco, they're going and they're buying stuff at a discount and they're buying it in bulk. And then what they're doing is they're selling it in bulk at a discount. So you're going there and buying it still probably cheaper than you would at a retail store but they got it at a discount so deep that they could sell it to you at a discount. So you're going there now. And then, you know, like any other store, you know, toilet paper at Walgreens, they're buying it cheaper and then they're selling it retail. So basically as a wholesaler, you're almost like the Costco. So you're not necessarily going and being the retail store, but you're negotiating in a deal at a price that's under market value and you're making a little bit of money on it and you're selling it to somebody else that's still getting it at a discount that they can make money on it, like any other product, you know? So, you know, if I go, I use the analogy of a pizza, but if I know a pizza is you know, $20 at, at a pizza place and I go and I, I, I have a friend that owns one. So I this might not be the greatest example, but I go and I, I negotiate it for $5. And then I go to somebody else and they go, Hey man, pizza's $20 across the street. I'll give you this, this pizza for $10. They're going, man, that, that's a great deal. They can literally either just save $10 and get a pizza with some, what you would call equity in the pizza. They have $10 that they made of, of worth in that, that they can hold on to, or they could turn around and sell it to somebody for $15 and then make five. And that other person still got a deal on it. So that's kind of what it is, is you're getting something cheap and then you're selling it to somebody else at a discount so they can make more money on it. Now there's so many different ways we can cut that up. That's a very general statement and maybe not the best example, but you know, for a, for a house, there's different numbers you'll look at that for somebody who wants a certain amount of cash flow or a certain return. Now, the the positives to it is it's probably the least risky thing you can do in real estate because if you don't have any money and you don't have any credit, you're not taking the property down, you're not getting a loan on it, and you're making quick cash. So it's 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 a quick nickel versus a slow dime. You're making less money than if you would have taken the deal down yourself, but you don't have the liability, you don't have the responsibility. You're in and you're out, and you're giving it to somebody else. Now. That's a great strategy. The downside to it is you're not making all of the profit. You're letting somebody else, the end user, make all that profit. So the reason to not wholesale would be maybe because you wholesaled five properties that would have made great bird properties or great cash flow properties. And because you wholesaled off of those instead of holding for the last 10 years, maybe those properties would have each had $100,000 to $150,000 in equity now, and you'd be worth $1.5 million on paper, and you would have had, I don't know, $15,000 a month coming in that you don't have now. So it's almost the, the regret afterwards of like, I wish I never sold that. I wish I the, the one that got away. So you're not building long-term cash flow, long-term equity, and long-term wealth, but you are building cash. So it's just a matter of you know, what do you need now? And a lot of people starting out, especially in a market right now where things are expensive, it might be smart to just bank that cash for when the market goes back down and you can make more money with that instead of trying to hold on and buy cash flow properties at the top of the market. So there's pros and cons to both of them, but that's why people do it a lot of the time is wholesale is quick cash and you can buy off wholesalers and get things at a discount. That's another great strategy. And that's kind of what I do is people don't know how to get deals or how to analyze deals or how to do the things that I do, or they don't have the contacts or the patients or the resources that I have. So, you know, I become 
you're a Costco. You go, look, I, you know, I don't want to go just buy something for $80,000 over asking price off of the MLS. I want something that's a deal. And I go, great. I have a deal. I got it discounted. I'll give it to you at a discount. So you're still paying less than market value. I'm making some money on it, but you're going to make more money on it. And that's kind of where that comes in. So I don't get to long-term cash flow. Maybe you're going to fix that up and make 300 grand on it. I'm not making that. Maybe I'm making 10 or 15 or 20 or whatever it is. I'm happy with that at the moment. And you're taking on the risk. So you're earning that long-term cash flow, that long-term wealth, or fixing it up and flipping it yourself to make bigger profits. But you're managing the contractors, you're managing the rehab, you're taking on the loan, you're putting in the money, you're putting it on the market, you're doing all those things. So just another thing to touch on. Now, we also talked about picking a market. So as far as picking the market, we did talk about just being open. So just being open to picking markets is, is a super important thing. I'm going to do a whole deep dive just on that. But there's so much resources out there right now that I would just, my advice would be don't get overly analytical and trying to decide what market you want to go into. Pick a handful of them, start reaching out to contacts on social media, start reaching out to realtors, start reaching out to wholesalers. If you're going to do direct to seller, um, so you're going to pay for marketing, maybe you do want to have some conversations before you put any money into your marketing. Maybe you do go in and you talk to some investor groups or you find some of the bigger investors in those areas where you do some research online and see what type of saturation reports you have or inventory reports. Or again, just get a pulse for are things moving? Are things selling? Look at days on market. But then literally just start putting out offers. And, and when you start to do that and you start to make those contacts and you see, again, my criteria would be our house is selling in the last 30, 60 days at or above asking price in under 30 days. Those are my big things. The date of last sale, days on market, condition a house. Or if you're looking for cash flow properties, are there a lot of rentals that are selling? And then you can literally just go online and see how many cash buyers are in some of these areas. And if I'm seeing that there's a lot of cash buyers that are taking down deals in a certain zip code, city, county, that's going to be a great place for me to go wholesale. If I see a lot of houses are selling fixed up for, you know, 20, 30, 40% more than they were bought three, six months before. That's going to be a good market to flip. So then I start to just dive in and talk to people on some of these Facebook groups or at some of these meetup groups or on social media or reach out to just different clubs or mentors or, or groups or masterminds and find out where's the good part of town, where's the bad part of town. And what will start to happen is, again, you're probably not going to get your first offer accepted. You're probably not going to get your first seller to say yes, but eventually somebody will. And when they do, that's when you kind of drop everything you hyper-focus on there. So just be open. And I call them fishing lines. Just, you know what? Pick five different lakes to fish in and just start talking to other fishermen in that area about where what, what kind of fish can you catch here? What kind of bait do you use? Well, how big are the fish you're catching here? How long does it take to catch? How many lines do you have to throw out? And just start throwing them out and throwing them out and throwing them out. And you are going to start to catch one. And then naturally, you're going to see that this pond, I catch more fish with less bait. And this pond, I throw out everything I had and catch anything. So I'm going to put my effort into this one because this is the one that's getting me the best return for my time. And again, everything is a deal to somebody. We talked about that. So when you're talking to those people, find out what are they buying? You know, don't be afraid to test the waters. Don't be embarrassed. Even if it's not a deal, you'll learn that by putting it out there. And the worst that'll happen is people will educate you. Yes, some people are dicks. Some people are jerks. Some people are obnoxious. It happens to me still, but other people are cool. And they'll be like, hey, you know what? Here's why this is not a deal. Here's why this is a bad part of town. Here's why you shouldn't do this. Or, hey, I do know a guy that'll take that down. You might not want to do that. You know, so just ignore the people that are obnoxious when you put a deal out. If they say it's not a deal, I think it's great that you're at least trying and you're putting it out there, but you will get buyers from that. You will get feedback from that. And that's exactly how you learn. 
So then you will prioritize who do you want to talk to? Who's the big fish? Who's the big buyers? Who's the people you want to lean on? And who's the people that supported you? And who's the people that didn't? Who's the people that were willing to help you? Who's the people that weren't? And you're going to start to make those contacts and you'll have your 5, 10, 15 buyers and your three or four or five guys that are willing to pick up the phone and help you or your three or four agents or your two or three people that are willing to lend you money. And that's how you start to form those teams. Okay, remote investing. Why is it scary? I'm going to do a whole other thing on that, but it's, it's an interesting topic because it's just a feeling. When you look at it at the end of the day, if you're working off of data, if you're working off of numbers, if you're working off of math and research and statistics, and you have things like videos, you have phones, you have Skype, you have all these different things, there's no reason in the world you should be any more frightened to invest around the corner than across the country, as long as you have your system of checks and balances, which again, it's a whole other podcast. I will go deeper into that. But it's funny because when I ask people why they want to invest close to their home, I just want to show up in case something's going on screwy. Okay, going on screwy with who? Oh, with the contractor. Okay, so you're going to show up at the house to make sure that the construction's going the way it's supposed to. Yes. Okay, great. I'm going to go, what do you do? Oh, I'm a librarian or I'm a math teacher. Or I'm a gym teacher or you know, I'm in IT. And I go, okay, so you know absolutely nothing about construction. And then you're going to show up and you're going to be able to pick this whole job apart. I mean, contractors get over on people every day because people don't know what they're looking at. So you feel better that you can go there and you can walk around the house and feel good about yourself. But at the end of the day, you're wasting your time and it's not helping you at all because in most cases, you are not qualified to be on that job site or to go look at what's going on there anyway. So a whole other can of worms we can open on that. But um, at the end of the day, everything comes down to consistency and communication having the discipline to have the uncomfortable conversations, being consistent with your communication, being open to the bad news, you're going to be able to see, does the data show I'm in a good area or a bad area? Does the data show I'm in a stable area, or, or, uh, an appreciating area or a declining area? And having, again, the discipline to look at those numbers and then not get emotional about trying to convince yourself that you should go and do that deal because you want to and being able to walk away is so huge. And during those deals, whether it's investing remotely or not, having that 72 hour rule I talked about in the Bigger Pockets podcast and consistently having conversations with your team members and consistently communicating, what do we need to get done today? Why was it done? Why was it not done? And then being able to pull the trigger on hiring slower, hiring fast is everything in real estate investing, especially in remote real estate investing. So we can go deeper on that. Um, transitioning to multifamily, just a couple other things here. Again, this is very general, but these are all topics I will dig deeper into. Um, but uh, this is another thing. Don't bite off more than you can chew, especially if you're the operator. Now, if you're going to be a lender or a partner, sometimes there's different things in there, but it's a great thing to get into because there's huge resale potential profits there, especially right now, people are looking for deals. The cash flow is astronomically bigger than single family homes. It's a true retirement plan after 10, 15 years when that debt is paid down on, you know, the bigger those buildings are, it's insane. And they tend to be less volatile in a recession if you've bought them properly in the right areas and you've taken care of them the right way. The math is going to tell you very straightforward, not subjective, what that property is worth because it's based on the income. So when people heard us say during that podcast, it's not subjective. It's it's literally just math. You can literally run the numbers and say, this is what the income is. This is what the expenses are. And in this market, 
or with this lender, this is what the going cap rate would be for me to refinance or sell this at that would make it worth this. And if I get this amount of debt on it at this interest rate, what's my cash flow after that debt service? Can I handle that? And now what happens if I have to evict some people or we have a downturn in the market or my rate adjusts or you know I have to decrease rents or whatever it is? Can I still cover that debt? Am I still okay? What are my pros and cons? Whereas with a single family home, you're seeing it right now that, I mean, people put it on the market for 200,000 and then a cash buyer comes in and pays 300,000 just because they love the house or they love the area or they don't have a place to live. So it, it just becomes more of a, an art. Whereas with commercial, it becomes more of a science, which we can dig into crunching numbers on that for hours and hours and hours. That's something we could talk about as I help find you deals. But my thing there, again, I would say, if you're the person who's going to take it down and be the operator, which means you're going to be actually buying it, you're going to be responsible for the day-to-day -day stuff and managing the teams and the stabilization and kicking people out and putting people in and, and running the maintenance guy and running the crews and running the, um, the property managers, don't bite off more than you can chew. If you don't have experience doing that and you're not used to managing teams and managing people, it's probably not a great idea for you to take somebody's money and go buy a 60-unit apartment building unless you have somebody that's really helping you with that. Um, you know, maybe you start with a five unit, with a 10 unit, with a 15 unit. Now I started bigger. I made those mistakes. I didn't have good people around me. I had people I thought I could trust, but I couldn't. But when I went back and I started doing it like a 10 unit and a 15 unit, I was like, oh, this is easy. I could do this all day. On, on day one, I remembered all the tenants' names or I could already visually picture all the, the units in there after walking through the building one time. It's like, oh, okay, you know, 10, 15, I can, for me, I can manage that no problem. Now I can start to scale up to 30. Okay, now I know which ones that if I took on a property and I had to kick out everybody, how long would it take us to turn those? What kind of stress does that put on me financially and emotionally and time-wise? And you know, I know it took me like a week and a half. I knew what the hotels cost. I knew what the time cost. I knew what the, I knew all those things. So I knew what I can bite off and what I can handle based on what else is going on in my life at that time. So just, it's a very personal thing. Not everything is a, a sewer bullet answer. So just something to think about again, we can go deeper on that. Trusting, but verifying. So don't get emotional about your deals. This is the biggest thing is I don't care. You're going to be excited. You're going to be scared. And when you start to dig into these deals and look at the numbers and really pull them back, you're going to a lot of the times want to ignore some of the red, the red flags or the warning signs that maybe this isn't a great deal for you. That is the biggest way I see people get in trouble is by getting emotional and buying deals they shouldn't because they really want them to work, even though they shouldn't work and they don't screen the deal properly and they don't screen the partners properly. Judge the partner, judge the deal, judge the communication. If the person you're trying to do the deal with is not giving you the answer that you want, or they're not giving you the time, or they're not giving you the straight information in a way that you can understand it and you feel comfortable with, or you feel like you're not getting the time and attention you need, don't do a deal with that person. If there's unquestioned answers, if yeah, just whatever it is that makes you comfortable, don't be afraid to ask those questions and don't take nonsense answers. Why? Oh, you're just very analytical. These aren't things you need to worry about. It's not okay with me. You know, we're going to get into a deal together. We're going to get into a long-term deal together. I'm putting money and time into this. That doesn't work for me. When someone, I go, well, how do you know this? What about this? Oh, just trust me. No, I, I do. I like you. I like to trust you. However, I'm going to trust, but verify everything. I, I cannot tell you how much nonsense and crap I hear to deflect having to give me the, the direct answer. And that's, I'm never wrong. Anytime I start to go, well, you know, and I've, I've, it's cost me money. It's cost me time. It's cost me friendships. It's cost me relationships because of exactly that. And I've known not to ignore it. And I don't have to be a jerk about it, but politely, 
I'm not going to accept the fact when somebody goes, well, this is just, it's, it's what I do. That's why it's that number. No, I need to see facts. I need to see numbers. I need to see math. I need to see comps. I need to see scopes. I need to see rehab budgets. I need to see some sort of numbers or plan or, or, or business plan or, or countless other things that go into this to show me that this is what's checking out. And this is something that I'm going to put my time into because if you're not going to take the time to map that out for me and to show me, make me feel comfortable with it. Even if it's a good deal, you're not a good person to be in the deal with. So I'm going to pass and I'm going to go find somebody else to work with or find another deal to get into. So something else to, to kind of get into. Now, one of the last things that um, I wanted to talk about was he talked about, it was interesting. We brought up wholesalers and he said that Brandon said to David, Hey, what do you think of wholesalers? And, and part of the thing was the stigma is that wholesalers suck. They're slimy. They have crappy deals. They just care about getting their money and moving on. And it's funny because David's an agent. And like a lot of people think agents are slimy and crappy. And like, so everybody has, whoever you're talking to, it's like the other person, like the flipper thinks the contractor is screwed. The contractor thinks the flipper's a, a clown. You know, the rehabber thinks the wholesaler's a jerk. The realtor thinks the wholesaler's a criminal. The Like the the whole, you know, it's everybody's always kind of like pointing to the other person of, but it's because they've had bad experiences because there's so many bad real estate agents out there, but there's so many good real estate agents out there. There's so many bad wholesalers out there. The amount of deals I buy from wholesalers is very low because most of the time they're not screening the deals. They don't care. They're giving you overinflated ARVs under budget uh, construction numbers and and they're just marking things up and they, and they don't want to take any responsibility. They want to leave all the liability on you. And, and, and there are tons of really bad, crappy wholesalers out there because the barrier to entry for both of those things are very low, but there's great ones also, just like anything else, good apples, bad apples, but unfortunately the bunch has been spoiled. So I do like the fact of like, whatever it is at the end of the day, going that extra mile. I just saw somebody, I forget, maybe been Steve Spiro, but like, it's not crowded when you go the extra mile, like, cause most people don't do it. So taking the time to do those things, but understand that just because somebody's an agent, just because somebody's a flipper, just because somebody's a wholesaler, just because somebody's a commercial broker or a syndicator or a lender doesn't mean that they're good or reputable. So do your due diligence on the person. And when you're doing business, make sure that you're doing good, reputable business because people are going to talk about the good and the bad and the ugly, and it's all going to come up, you know, and just being open to what's going right, what's going wrong, coming from a place of solutions and help, and just being as honest as you can with the deal and with the buyer and about what it is and what it isn't, people are going to appreciate it. At the end of the day, especially if you're a wholesaler, it is up to you as the buyer to do your risk assessment. And, you know, I always give people that CYA when I show them the deal, hey, this is the best I saw, but things happen, things go wrong. Maybe the due diligence takes three months and things change, but I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that this checks out to what I think it is, but you have to do your part too. You know, this isn't just all me. So, but, you know, going and having those honest conversations and not just painting some blue sky picture of everything's going to be amazing. You're going to become rich with no work or no effort. That's nonsense. And that's what people put out there. So take the time. The other thing that he talked about was, I didn't give a straight answer because it, it threw me off a little bit and I couldn't think of the exact example, but he said like, how do you deal with the owner when you're wholesaling multifamily properties and with wholesaling multifamily, the way you do it. And again, I'm going to do some deal dives on this. And I also talked about the, the wholesale deal. So the mobile home park, the, the eight unit and the, um, and the hotel, I'm going to do individual episodes over the next couple of weeks, just, digging into those because he even asked me what I made on it, what the net was. And I couldn't even think about it. Again, a lot of the stuff I was like, uh. so 
about talking to the owners. Yes, sometimes I, I don't have to talk to the owner as much if there's somebody good in place. Um, if I do know the owner and it's somebody that just rehabbed the property, that's a different story. But this like last one, I had to deal with the owner a lot. And part of the way I set it up was, hey, this is my partner, you know, so we're all partners on it. You're dealing with this guy. I'm working with the buyer, but especially on commercial, it's easier for them to believe, you know, if you go to a single family home and there's five of us, they're going to be like, I don't understand what's happening. All five of you dudes are buying this home. That doesn't make sense. On the commercial, you know, oh, you know, this one's in charge of finance. This one's in charge of crews. And I'm just kind of the facilitator because they're working on the other deals. And I take over at this point. There's so many ways you can pick it up and manage it. And it's, it's more acceptable in that place. But I think, again, having a point of contact of like, we're not all going to talk to this person, but there's, you know, sometimes times to play good cop and bad cop. And I'll tell you on that eight unit, that seller was a pain in the ass. And, you know, tying this in, David and Brandon talked about being the therapist and being that therapist is why you make the money. You, you make the money because you took that on from your years of experience. And this was a good example of the years of experience I have had of dealing with difficult sellers, difficult people, just difficult personalities and learning to stay calm, eye on the prize, learning it from business, learning it from jujitsu, learning it from boxing, learning it from life. That's what gets you through. And, you know, I, I don't know if anybody else in a couple of these last few deals I did would have had that skill, even though they could have, you know, I, I'm getting the text of like, this one's mad at this one. One day, the, 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 the partner or the other guy or the wholesaler or the realtor or the broker, or the people are mad at different points at different days. Cause every time you're making one of those people happy, you're making somebody else upset because somebody's not getting their way. And you being in the middle of that and working for the deal and being the therapist and having good emotional intelligence to stay calm, listen, hear people, make them feel felt. That's what gets those deals done. It really becomes more about managing the people and less about managing the project. And that's what starts to take a lot of time and being able to have that skill. And like he said, be the therapist. Here's people's problems. Talk them through the solutions, make them feel heard. That goes a long, long way in business, especially when you're talking about multifamily properties, mobile home parks and six figure deals that there's a lot on the line. People are counting on that money. People are counting on that sale. People are counting on those commissions. There's all kinds of things in there and you help quarterback that deal and manage everybody across or everybody wins. They're going to want to do business with you again on all levels. That's how good business gets done. So the final deep dive, I didn't get to go. I, I did go pretty deep on that was a wholetail deal. I will talk more about that deal that we did that we talked about. I'll break it down in way more detail on a very soon episode, but that's it for me today. I hope that was uh, somewhat helpful. There was a lot of different topics. I wasn't really sure where to go this week with the episode, but I did want to talk and obviously get another episode out. And for those of you who did not listen to that podcast, hopefully these are all different things for you to think about on different levels. And I will go deeper on all these topics, but I thought it was a good overview to touch on a lot of different things that experienced investors might know, but a lot of newer investors or guys that are writing to me or girls that are writing to me that haven't been around that long, they might not understand a lot of those terms or heard a lot of those things. So I forget that sometimes, that sometimes people don't know some of the terms or some of the strategies or some of the things we're talking about. So I always like to just go back and try and break it down a little bit simpler and remember some of the things when I first started that were a little more complicated or in my head, it didn't make sense. And I want to try and make things more layman and, and not necessarily dumb it down, but, you know, explain in a way that people understand it and are familiar with it so they can understand more and ask better questions because that's going to help us all. So hopefully this was helpful. Again, if you can review this and subscribe to this, share it with friends. 
and uh, stay engaged, follow us on social media and talk to me about how I can help you get into real estate. Please nicknicknick.com slash links, nicknicknick.com slash bigger pockets. Uh, check out our affiliates links. Have an outstanding day. And uh, to Aisha O'Connell, Mark and Husna O'Connell's baby. I believe it is her birthday tomorrow. So happy birthday to her. I love them all very much. Great friends of mine for my entire life now. Go check out Taking Back Sunday. They're coming back on the road soon. So the O'Connells, I hope you have a great birthday with Aisha today. And uh, everybody have a great day. Thank you.